Good morning and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, December 2nd, 2018. The share ID numbers for Friday, November 30th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, share ID 12,246. That's 12246. And the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 12,247. That's 12247. This morning, A Vision for You presents the double whammy. The big book's approach to our disease is what Dr. William Silkworth, who wrote the doctor's opinion, called the double whammy. Put simply, we have an allergy of the body, which means that once we start eating certain kinds of foods, certain ingredients of foods, combinations of foods, we develop uncontrollable cravings which overpower us. And we have a mental obsession, which means that even if we stop eating those foods, our mind persuades us that we can return to eating those foods all over again and again and again and again. Thus, we can't stop once we start due to the allergy that creates the cravings, and we can't stop from starting again due to the mental obsession that sends us back to eating those foods all over again. Joining us today to speak about the double whammy is Lori C. Lori, a recovered compulsive overeater from Winnipeg, Canada, spent much time intensively working with other compulsive overeaters and carrying the message of recovery. Welcome to the line, Lori. Great to have you back. Thank you, Leah. Thank you very much. I, I can be heard. Everything's fine. I hear that? you well. I hear you Good. well. Okay. Uh, well, I, I'm very privileged uh, once again to be on a special edition. I want to apologize in advance if you hear a a young child uh, making noise. Uh, that'll be on for about a half an hour until they, they leave. My I'm visiting my our granddaughter and, and daughter and, and son-in-law in, in Ottawa. Um, the topic I've been asked to speak to is, is the double whammy, which Leah just gave, and I don't have to speak about that at all again because it's such a wonderful summary that she gave, uh, and also developing a plan of eating. Because with the double whammy, with this concept of not being able to stop once we've started and not being able to uh, stop from starting, uh, we immediately understand that the solution is, at least for most of us, if we have that problem, that the solution is that we must stop indulging in those things which create the uncontrollable cravings. The, the word is allergy that's used in the big book. And we have to find something that will change our mind's ability to persuade us to go back. And what the 12-step fellowships have discovered uh, throughout the, the years and, over, and throughout the world, uh, millions and millions of people have found that working the 12 steps to the best of their ability a day at a time gives them a sanity which keeps their minds clear so that they do not fall prey to the obsession. And that is what we offer, what we in Overeaters Anonymous offer to the compulsive eater who still suffers, the clarity of mind that allows us to say, I don't want this stuff. I don't need this stuff. There is no excuse in the world that's good enough to persuade me to return to what I have identified as a problem. So, 
the plan of eating is important because we have to figure out what it is that we must abstain from. Unlike uh, almost every other 12-step fellowship, not every, but almost every other, we are an umbrella fellowship. We, do not, we are not a single substance or a single behavior fellowship. Um, it's in that one area, Overeaters Anonymous has greater difficulties uh, than the more single substance uh, fellowships. In Alcoholics Anonymous, you come in, it is taken for granted, you, uh, indulge in, you, you can't indulge in alcohol in any form, you stop it, you work the steps, and the steps give you relief and release. Uh, gambling behavior, you do not gamble, you do not take any risks, you stop that, you abstain from that, and you go on. I, I hope I understand those two fellowships well enough, at least in that respect. Same with uh, narcotics, same with cocaine, same with, uh, with the various uh, kinds of uh, behaviors that uh, are, are identified. There, there are other fellowships like us in which each individual must understand what his or her own problem is, what causes these cravings, um, and, and what to abstain from. And that is where Overeaters Anonymous uh, has has some difficulties, not only because we have to develop it ourselves and it has to be right for us, but because throughout the fellowship, there are all kinds of theories that have developed where people say, this is the only solution. You must have seen from X, Y, and well, in Canada, we say Z, X, Y, and Z, or X, Y, and Z, um, because that's yeah, because I have to abstain from it, you have to abstain from it, or I won't sponsor you if you don't. And uh, that's a that's contrary to the group conscience of OA, as I'll discuss later on. And anyway, let's start with the double whammy so we understand the urgency of what we have to do, which is to abstain from what we must abstain from, and then to work the 12 steps to the best of our abilities as quickly and as powerfully as we can. Because if we don't, our minds will eventually creep up on us and persuade us to go back to what it is that we have to, that we must abstain from. The origin of all this comes from Dr. William Silkworth of this, this theory. And uh, he was, uh, it was called the little man who loved drunks. He, uh, he was, um, oh, I don't know exactly. He was sort of like a neurologist, and a, a, a neurosurgeon and psychologist all combined in those days, I guess it seemed a little easier to do. And he worked for the town's hospital in, uh, in New York, which catered for the most part to wealthy uh, people who had addictions and mostly alcoholics. And uh, people would come into the town's hospital and they would dry them out and they would, through all kinds of various treatments, get them through the delirium tremens and uh, counsel them. And Dr. Silkworth uh, ministered to, I don't know, 50,000 uh, uh, alcoholics in his time there. And uh, he had very little success. Uh, they kept coming back. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, certainly, you know, way we often go around the table, keep coming back. Well, Dr. Silkworth didn't want them to keep coming back. He wanted them to stay away, but they kept coming back. And um, he began to develop a theory which was, uh, if not unique, certainly unusual uh, for his time. And he published a few papers uh, on this in the, in the uh, uh, late uh, uh, 35, 36, I think, um, in, in which he had developed this theory, uh, which did not make any mark upon the world at all until Alcoholics Anonymous embraced it. And that was that the alcoholic was not simply mentally unstable or mentally sick, but the alcoholic had a physical problem as well. 
And he described that in various ways. Uh, uh, but one of the ways he described it was to use a relatively new word, a new word for the 1930s, uh, uh, which was allergy. And in those days, the word allergy was, uh, was used to describe any detrimental reaction to a substance of some kind. Now, we think of an allergy as being something that creates a skin condition or a a, you know, bowel condition or um, uh, an aphylactic shock. It's sort of like a, a, a sudden and obvious, immediate, uh, a clear action. But in those days, it was a much generic re a reaction, I should say, a much more generic uh, reaction, uh, any kind of detrimental reaction. And his concept was that when alcoholics ingest alcohol in any form, they develop a reaction which was unique to them and was not found in a normal drinker. And that reaction was what he called the phenomenon of craving. Now, a phenomenon is an occurrence for which there is no explanation. You don't know why, it just happens. And uh, to this day, no one knows, and there's been no clear analysis of why this happens. And because of that, this theory has not been scientifically replicable. Uh, people who some might consider to be alcoholics would not be alcoholics by the definitions found in the big book. They are people who are heavy drinkers and may drink because of mental problems, uh, but don't have this allergic action. They just want to seek oblivion. Um, and they may not have this need of wanting more and more. Uh, you know, you, if you, you could be a heavy drinker and not be an alcoholic, the big book says, and vice versa. You could be a moderate drinker and be an alcoholic. One of the defining features of being the alcoholic described in the big book is a person who has this physical reaction, this phenomenon of craving. And that really is important. You know, my, my older daughter went to a, a residential college where she told me that she was the only non-drinker on weekends. Everyone drank and they drank to oblivion, uh, to the best of my knowledge. Uh, and they did that for, for two years while in college. Um, they, the weekends were just the kinds of things where tremendously alcoholic uh, binges. She, she was the only one. It was such a small town. There wasn't even a traffic light. And, and the joke was that she was a designated walker. Uh, but anyway, uh, just moving on from that one. Um, uh, not one of her classmates, the best of her knowledge, is an alcoholic, has become an alcoholic. They just drank to excess for various reasons. It was the freedom of being by themselves. It was for all kinds of reasons. So, uh, this concept of the allergy is, is really important, and, and the doctor uh, talks about it. Uh, but before the doctor talks about it, you'll find this on the fourth edition on page XXVI, 26 in Roman numerals, and you'll find it on page, if you have the third edition or the second edition, XXID, 24 in the, in the uh, prefatory uh, sections. So um, the, in the large type, you, you've got the doctor's opinion, the doctor's name up above, William D. Silkworth, MD. And then the big book uh, writers say, the physician who at our request gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. In this statement, he confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. This is the first must in the big book, by the way. There are a number of them. It's, it's, it is called a program of just suggestions, but there's a lot of musts in the big book. And I've got to tell you that when I, when I read that, when I first joined OA back in 1986, 
Um, I read that. It was one of the only few only pieces of literature we had. And I said, well, that's true for the alcoholic, but I don't have to believe that my body is different. As a matter of fact, all of the books I read about all the diets I have to go on, all the people I have consulted about this problem, uh, the weight loss programs I've been to, all of them tell me that uh, my real problem is eating to excess. And so if I go on a diet and I lose the weight, then I can eat in moderation everything. And uh, one of the popular weight loss programs that I was a, a member of uh, told me that when I reached goal weight, I could then have a scoop of ice cream or a donut, a half a donut, or two cookies a week. And this would satisfy my sort of my need to have something sweet or nice or happy. Uh, but at the same time, I, I, could, I wouldn't gain weight if I did that. And of course, that scoop of ice cream turned into uh, not just something that was clearly knifed off at the scoop, so like a half a half a scoop, it turned into a huge ball of ice cream, and that ball of ice cream turned within six months into a gallon of ice cream, a tub that I was scraping the bottom of. Um, but I didn't know that that was a problem. I just thought that I had sort of lost my way in this program and went back to it again and became three times a lifetime member. Um, when I joined OA, uh, no one told me about this. I read it, and even my sponsor, the most wonderful person who really helped me so much, but, but he told me that I just had to abstain from eating compulsively, which to him meant that I just couldn't eat to excess. I could eat anything as long as I didn't uh, eat too much of it. Uh, and I certainly did not want to believe that like the alcoholic, I had to abstain from anything other than the behavior of compulsive eating. And, and so I relapsed in and out of this program for seven years. Um, I, I just, uh, I would work the steps. I, 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 I'd, I'd eat moderately um, in order to lose weight. I wouldn't eat any of my trigger foods, uh, what I now would call my trigger foods. I would just eat sort of very healthy foods. I'd lose weight. I'd be working the steps. I'd have this wonderful experience working the steps. And then I'd reach sort of like a, a reasonable weight. And then I'd put myself back on the maintenance uh, diet that I had been given by this uh, weight loss program. And um, suddenly I'd be eating out of the bottom of the, uh, of the ice cream tub, uh, the tub of ice cream. <laughs> Excuse me. So um, I, I couldn't explain this. Finally, I was introduced to the big book again. Uh, but talk to, uh, uh, talking about it as if it contained directions and wasn't just a helpful book uh, to help me feel good and uh, help in my recovery. And um, I got to this point. In this statement, he confirms that we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. And they go on. It did not satisfy us to be told we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were full flight from reality or were outright mental defectives. That was the theory that Dr. Silkworth uh, uh, started with. These things were true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent with some of us, but we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. The doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us. Remember, allergy in those days meant simply an adverse or detrimental reaction of some kind to a substance. Uh, and uh, the detrimental reaction the doctor will be describing later on. 
As laymen, our opinion as to its soundness may, of course, mean little, but as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that his explanation makes good sense. It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. I finally began to study the book and say, I've got to give up. I, I'm, I'm been relapsing over a seven-year period. I must sort of do things differently. So I started to say to myself, what is it that I have to abstain from? I, I must start to believe that there is something wrong with my body as well. Now, the doctor goes on, and, and, and I just want to point out, right at the bottom of that same page, the big book says, more often than not, it is imperative, it is necessary that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached, as he has then a better chance of understanding, accepting what we have to offer. That's the first notion of sobriety. And then right at the bottom of the next page, XXVII in the fourth edition, or XXV in the uh, third and second edition, right at the bottom, Dr. Silkworth, now the smaller uh, type. Of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor. We're now on the next page, XXVIII or XXVI. And this requires a definite hospital procedure. These are the first major mentions of sobriety in the big book, and it is taken for granted. Of course, you have to be sober um, before you work the steps. Uh, I'm not sure we say that as much in OA in, in our new 12 and 12, uh, a significant improvement over the old one. Uh, they say in step four, uh, ideally, we ought to be abstinent. Uh, my experience is that if you're not abstinent by the time you work step four, uh, which is the time when you take some kind of action, uh, you can't be honest. If you can't be honest, you can't work step four. But anyway, the, the doctor goes on right after those words I just read. We believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. It's one of the symptoms of an allergy. It's a symptom of an allergy. And what is this manifestation? What is this symptom? He calls it the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These are, so again, the phenomenon is an occurrence for which there is no explanation. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all, and once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. And right at the bottom, uh, the last paragraph on that same page, Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that it runs away from them that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. And I can't forget how when I was dating my wife and we would go out to eat and she would love what she ate and eat only half of it. I thought she was really sick. I thought there was something terribly wrong with her. I, I can remember going out for dinner and then a movie at which I'd be uh, gorging myself with popcorn and, and she'd have like a half a chocolate bar. And then we'd go out for a snack afterwards. I'd eat a whole pizza and she'd have her little slice sort of and move it around the plate. I thought, boy, there's something sick about her. Uh, she doesn't enjoy food. And that's the, <laughs> the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented, going back to that bottom of the page, unless they can again experience, going on to the next page, the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks, uh, drinks which they see others taking with impunity, with, with, um, with the ability to, to do that without a problem. After they've succumbed 
to the desire again, after they've fallen to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, this concept that they can't stop once they've started, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with the firm resolution not to drink again, and this is repeated over and over again because they keep going back to it. And unless this person can experience the entire psychic change, there's very little hope of his recovery. So this was uh, a theory that said that your real problem, you have two real problems. One is that you can't ingest alcohol in any form because your body is abnormal. And once you get it, you can't stop. And the other part of the theory is you keep repeating this over and over again because your mind keeps sending you back. The doctor called that a mental obsession. Um, so this theory was actually revolutionary uh, in, in the history of, of alcoholism treatment because it, it was the, the basis of what step one became. And step one is we are powerless. We admitted we were powerless over food that our lives have become unmanageable. And the, 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 the subordinate phrase that our lives have become unmanageable, it's not and that our lives, it's not we admitted that our lives have become unmanageable. We admitted that we're powerless over food that our lives have become unmanageable in relation to the food. At least that's how I interpret it. And that's how uh, many uh, big book uh, thumpers uh, interpret it. Um, and, and so what that means is our powerlessness over food is the inability to put it down and the unmanageability of our lives is in relation to managing the concept, the, the problem of uh, not being able to put it down. Um, and the doctor says on page XXIX29, uh, or in the third and uh, second edition of 27, XXDII, I do not hold with those who believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. And if you turn the page, uh, he'll give an example, he'll talk about the many classifications of alcoholics. Um, you know, they're the manic depressive types, the mental ill, mentally ill, the deniers, the normal people. And then on page XXX30 um, in, in the fourth edition, and XXDIII28 in the second or third editions, second last paragraph, he says, all these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. This phenomenon that we have suggested may be the manifestation of an allergy which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been, by any treatment with which we are familiar, permanently eradicated, gotten rid of. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. I'm going to come back to that paragraph because that is the beginning of OA's history of abstinence. So the doctor's opinion talks mostly about the allergy of the body, this phenomenon of craving. And when I, when I worked on it, and I'll talk about plan of eating in, in, a, in a little while, when I worked on it, what, what became clear to me as I worked on it was that I could not just sort of see the idea of, well, I would have a teaspoon of ice cream and then I would be gorging on it over a period of the next day. That it's just like the alcoholic going to the bar and ordering the single drink and then suddenly finding that he or she has had uh, 20 uh, drinks. Um, that's, that's not the experience that I had. Uh, it may be the experience for many other people, and uh, certainly it's not the experience of every alcoholic. I mean, many alcoholics uh, have one drink. They don't drink that day. They go back, they have two drinks, and then they end up having many more. 
uh, my experience was uh, was my secret eating. I would I would sort of try to eat normally in front of people, and then I would find myself gorging myself uh, later on. Uh, this does not have to be the extreme. Uh, go to the extreme before one accepts the notion that it's true for for him or her. Uh, certainly, when I look back at my history in OA, it was a history of getting to OA at least 100 pounds or 200 pounds earlier than I would have. I was introduced to OA by a member of Alcoholics Anonymous who had been a gutter drunk and told me that I had to start uh, treating my illness, my food, as seriously as he treated his alcohol. And he gave me permission to treat it because I had said to him, you know, I've never had a business meeting on a Thursday eaten a donut on a Wednesday and woke up in a hotel room on a Friday, not knowing where I was, because those were the stories that he and his friends had told me. I remember those stories well, uh, but I never had that experience. I was, I was pretty successful in the work I was doing. Uh, everything seemed to be going well. I was just gaining more and more weight. Um, and I couldn't explain why, because all the mental pressures on me had eased. I was no longer um, filled with the kind of stress I had been. I'd gone through counselor. I'd done the kinds of things you, you, you need to do in order to feel less stressed. And he told me, you have to treat your problem as seriously as I treat mine. Giving me permission to do that, I do believe saved me 200 pounds. Uh, I believe I was on the road to oblivion, but I would not have accepted it um, uh, if, 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 if I hadn't weighed 200 pounds more, 150, 200 pounds more. I was very, very heavy when I joined, but I was not yet morbidly obese. Um, so, excuse <clears throat> me, that is the <clears throat> concept of the allergy to the body. It is this, it is expressed in so many different ways, but the, the generic way is you've got food coming to your, uh, your mouth, your hand is bringing it, uh, the spoon, the fork, and sometimes the hand itself, even though you should be using the spoon and the fork, and it's bringing it to your mouth. And at times you are saying to yourself, I I've got to stop. Uh, this is ridiculous. I can't, I can't eat this stuff. This is bad for me. I've already gained too much. I, it's just terrible. Um, and, and yet you keep on doing it. Or you may be a person who vomits in order to get rid of all the uh, excess of food that you've eaten. And, and the vomiting is something you can't stop because it's something that keeps you going and you keep saying to yourself, I have to stop. I have to, this is terrible. It's bad for my teeth. It's bad for my mouth. It's bad for my stomach. And you keep on doing it. Or you may be restricting your, your eating and you may be saying to yourself, I will not eat this even though I want it. I will not eat even though I want it. Um, or I don't want it or I, it looks awful or, or whatever it is. And that kind of behavior uh, may be creating problems with you. So we'll, we'll talk about all that and what you have to abstain from in a little while. What I want to do is talk a bit more about, um, and I just have to, on my computer, open up a file, um, a recent document. In the uh, chapter, <laughs> yeah, well, where is it then? Um, you, you'll find it in the, in the um, yeah, I've got it. Uh, in, in, it's discussed in a number of different pages, but in, uh, in the big book, there is a solution um, they they um, talk about it um, in many different places, uh, uh, but in, on page 23, um, page 22, right at the bottom, they say, we know that while the alcoholic keeps away from drink as he may do for months or years, he reacts much like other men. 
we're equally positive that once he takes any alcohol, whatever, into his system, something happens both in the bodily and mental sense, which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. I think what happens in the bodily sense is this craving, this need to have more, this sense. You know, if you've ever tried to hold your breath, you know that at a certain point, depending on your physical abilities, I think the record is six minutes, uh, maybe longer. But certainly for me, it's no more than a minute. At a certain point, your body says, I want more and you're going to start breathing again. And, uh, and your body overpowers your mind. You, there are people who can slow their heartbeat down, um, heart rate down, but the, the, the heart keeps beating. There are people who can hold their eyelids open for a long time, but eventually their eyes, their body tells them, go back and blink. I need you to blink your eyes. And that's what happens bodily and mentally. The body is saying, I want you to do something. And the mental mind is saying, I can't, I can't overpower my body. My body is winning. My body is telling me what to do. And, and for you to classify yourself as a compulsive eater requires you not to say, oh, I've never gorged every day for the past 20 years. Uh, it requires you to accept for yourself, in, based on your own experience, if you've ever had occasions where you wanted to stop but haven't been able to, you're in the middle of a spree and you just can't stop Anyway, the big book goes on, uh, on page 23, the experience of any alcoholic will abundantly confirm this. Then they say this, these observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. If you ask him why he started the last bender, the chances are he will offer you any one of 100 alibis. Sometimes these excuses have a certain plausibility, but none of them really make sense in the light of the havoc, the disaster, and alcoholics drinking about three-eighths. Um, they sound like the philosophy of the man who having a headache beats himself in the head with a hammer so he can't feel the ache. If you draw this fallacious reasoning to the attention of an alcoholic, he'll laugh it off or become irritated and refuse to talk. Once in a while, he may tell the truth. And the truth, strange to say, is usually that he has no more idea why he took that first drink than you have. Some drinkers have excuses with which they're satisfied part of the time, but in their hearts, they really do not know why they do it. Once this malady has a real hold, they're a baffled lot. There is the obsession that somehow, someday, they will beat the game. An obsession is an idea which takes precedence over all other ideas and overpowers all other ideas. And um, the, the, uh, that concept uh, is so essential to an understanding of the real problem. So the chapter more about alcoholism is all about that issue. Uh, it's, it, it begins on, on page um, uh, 30. It, it is all about uh, this mental obsession. Uh, I, I won't go through the whole thing, but uh, just the beginning, most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. No person likes to think he is bodily, allergy to the body, and mentally, mental obsession, different from his fellows. Therefore, it's not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain, futile attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control, that's the, the allergy, that is, he will be able to have a little bit without needing more, 
and enjoy. That's the mental obsession that he's not going to be tormented by that little bit and want more and more and go back to it is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. And uh, the big book suggests that uh, right at the bottom of that page, I'm not going to read it, that we accept this physical disability. Um, you know, it, I wear glasses. Uh, I accept that I need glasses in order to read and to see well in, in a distance. I don't take my glasses off and pretend that I can see. Uh, I wear a hearing aid because it enhances my hearing. I accept that I have a disability. I walk on two legs. Some people uh, can't walk on two legs. They accept their disability. They don't pretend that they don't have that disability. But I don't have four legs. I accept I don't have four legs. I accept that, uh, you know, being 72, I can't do the same things I could do when I was 30. Um, I accept my physical aging. I accept the, the truth about my body. Um, and yet, my eating was characterized by countless vain attempts to prove that I could stay away from the things that I knew were bad for me. And uh, I wanted to believe that I could eat all those things, that, that this was a physical, I didn't have this physical disability, this allergy that Dr. Uh, Silkworth uh, describes. This whole chapter is about it. And I, it's, 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 I'm just going to focus on one or two uh, passages and then go and then uh, talk go back to the abstinence concept um, uh, the uh, uh, page um, uh, da, 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 page uh, 37 they talk about it's an example and they talk about a person who went back to drinking even though he knew he couldn't and they say on page 37, right on the second uh, full paragraph, that you may think this is an extreme case. To us, it is not far-fetched, for this kind of thinking has been characteristic of every single one of us. We sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the consequences. But there's always the curious mental phenomenon, this unexplained occurrence, that parallel with our sound reasoning, there inevitably always ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink. Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea won out. Next day, we'd ask ourselves in all earnestness and sincerity how it could have happened. And I, this made me think of this parallel, these two parallel ideas um, uh, always made me think as I grew up in the, in the 50s of the, the old Mickey Mouse cartoons with the devil and the angel on either shoulder. One of them saying in Mickey's voice, which I won't try to imitate, don't do it. It's bad for you. This is terrible. You know that once you start, you can't stop. You can't even have so much as a teaspoon of ice cream. This is bad for you. Don't have it. And what is the devil saying on the other shoulder? You know, in a way, we talk about the emotional problems. And there are many emotional reasons and excuses that I have given myself uh, to go back to my compulsive eating uh, uh, foods, my, my compulsive foods, my trigger foods. Uh, these emotions have ranged within minutes of each other as I'm so lonely or there are too many people around me. They've been, I'm so happy to I'm so sad. Uh, they've been, uh, uh, I'm completely useless uh, to I'm, I'm able to do too many things. Uh, all these emotions simultaneously, I'm worthless, I'm too good for everyone. 
Um, I, I, I uh, you know, all these conflicting emotions that have occurred almost simultaneously in me uh, were excuses that I thought were good enough. Let's put those aside. Those are emotions that most of us have experienced when we find ourselves returning to our compulsive uh, foods or, or our, our trigger foods or our trigger food behaviors. Um, but how about the stupid ones? How about the ones like, oh, they made it especially for me? Or uh, it's free. Uh, I can have it. Uh, or, I'm, or I'm standing up. It doesn't count. Or they're not looking. It doesn't count. Or I was so good for the last year. I deserve it. Or I was so good for the last six months. I was so good for the last month. I was so good for the last week. I was so good for the last day. I was so good for the last hour. I was so good five minutes ago when I refused the bun. So, of course, now I can have the ice cream and the cake and the donuts. Um, these are simply stupid and insane reasons. So, ultimately, I think of what the, of the, what the devil says as basically the word, come on, have some. It's sort of like, I don't care what your reason is. I don't care what your excuse is. Pick an excuse. I'll give you an excuse. You can have it, and it's good enough for you today. And I, I think that that's what the big book is talking about. And I, I, in all of the descriptions of the various kinds of mental obsessions there are, it's far more than emotional. It includes emotional, but it goes beyond that. And that's why I think the word mental helps a lot more than emotional, because ultimately it is insane. It is ultimately doing the worst thing you could possibly do to solve a problem that you know you have. Uh, you know, the, this uh, mythical de uh, definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting uh, different results uh, is, is ultimately that is. So if you think that you have both at times had these immense cravings that cause you to go back to do things that you can't stop, you, you are going on and on, you think you have that physical issue or that's shown to you and you have the mental problem that you keep giving yourself excuses for indulging in things you know you shouldn't be indulging in that you've been away from for a long time, then you fall under the definition of the real addict that the big book describes. Now, I want, I, I, you know, the, the steps give you the mind issue. The steps give you that release. The, the steps, the 12 steps will give you the sanity that keeps your, the devil on your shoulder from saying, come on. And, and that's, let's put the steps aside for the moment and let's concentrate on the beginning. How do you figure out, if you are a member of uh, Overeaters Anonymous, what it is that you have to abstain from? So I want to go back to the doctor's opinion and go back to the history of OA. On page XXX in the, in the fourth edition, XXVIII28 in the third and second edition, the second last paragraph, all these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon, the unexplained occurrence of craving. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation, the symptom of an allergy which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. <coughs> it has never been by any treatment with which we are familiar, permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. This paragraph was read at an open AA meeting that Roseanne, the founder of OA, attended two years after 
um, uh, the founding of Overeaters Anonymous. In those two years, Overeaters Anonymous had grown. There were, I think there were 15 groups at this time, mostly in California, and uh, maybe some in Texas by that time. I can't remember whether the Texas groups had, had joined at, at that time. And diets had been floating about. People were on various kinds of diets. Uh, there were all kinds of theories about what was the best diet, but people were dieting. Um, and they did not have the equivalent uh, word to describe what it is that they were doing. A lot of them were doing what my old weight loss program used to suggest, which was to eat a lot between meals, to keep your mouth busy, uh, chew gum, uh, eat uh, celery, carrots, uh, hot air popcorn or something like that. Just keep your mouth busy. Um, and Rosetta attended this, this meeting and heard this paragraph and came up with the realization or realized that there was no equivalent equivalence to sobriety. And she wrote a letter to all the groups saying, we have to develop this notion of sobriety. We should call it abstinence. And it means that we should not be eating at times other than when we are looking for our nutrition. Uh, and she suggested the concept of three meals a day, nothing in between, no eating in between, and thus we would be um, um, abstaining from compulsive eating. So that's the, the history of the word abstinence. It's been defined variously in a way over time. The current definition of abstinence is abstaining from compulsive food and uh, food behaviors and working towards a, uh, working towards or maintaining a healthy body weight. So if uh, you can't say you're abstinent, if you are not both abstaining from food and food behaviors and working towards uh, or maintaining a healthy body weight. And one thing about OA that makes it very unusual, as I said earlier, is that it is not a single substance. At, at the group conscience of OA, as expressed in, the, in, the, um, in two pamphlets, The Dignity of Choice and uh, 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 ooh, just uh, Plan of Eating, Plan of Eating, the good conscience of OA is that the plan of eating that we developed that allows us to abstain from those things we know cause us problems uh, is unique to the individual. Uh, that we should not accept someone else's without seeing that it applies to us. And I want to spend uh, my remaining time on the idea of developing a plan of eating. Uh, this is a very vexed issue. There are so many theories and concepts in OA that the newcomer may take, they think that they should be taken for granted. We hear the words sugar, we hear the word carbs, we hear the words uh, keto, paleo, uh, you know, uh, we hear weigh and measure, we hear a gray sheet, blue sheet, orange sheet. Um, there are all these plans of eating around that people um, are just given. Uh, they're given by their sponsors. They're given by the meetings they go to. They're just taken for granted as this is what we must do. And that is contrary to the group conscience of OA. The group conscience of OA is that we have to develop our own individual plan. Not to say that there's not a huge overlap and not to say that one plan that one person may have might not work for another. But I know that within the rooms of OA, I know, I know very well from my own experience that there are things that I can eat that other people can't. And vice versa, there are things I can't eat that other people can. I can't eat uh, high-fat dairy products, for instance. 
Um, and yet one of my mentors in OA can have a pat of butter if he goes out to eat and it doesn't bother him. Well, that pat of butter would be like the first drink to an alcoholic for me. Um, I, uh, you know, so I, when I work on a plan of eating with sponsees, when I worked on my own plan of eating, I started off, first of all, by listing binge foods, the foods that I have found myself eating uncontrollably. And um, they differ from person to person. I mean, there's obviously a lot of overlap, but uh, they differ from person to person. So I listed binge foods. <coughs> I've added, uh, when I asked sponsees, I've added foods that you know you can't live without. And I don't mean physically live without. Uh, I mean that you know you, you can't bear the thought of never eating in your life. I think that's an important group of uh, things that you should put down. What is it that you can't bear never having again in your entire life? Because the chances are that there's something in that food or maybe that food itself, which, uh, which is something that you might have to abstain from. And so I, I, and I ask sometimes people to develop a, a, an eating uh, a diary to tell me the kinds of things uh, they, they, they've eaten uh, and when they've eaten, because it's also important to look at, at behaviors. That was my first plan of eating was only particular foods and food ingredients. And after six months of abstaining from those and working the steps and not wanting them anymore, I realized I hadn't lost any weight. So clearly quantity was an issue. And I had to look at eating behaviors that created quantities in me. So I'll, I'll talk about that as well. Um, so I start from that. And then I go through, when I work with sponsees, I go through discussions about what it is about those foods that creates problems. Now, one of my hobby horses, simply because it is so prevalent in OA, is to be kind of a contrarian uh, when it comes to what people take for granted. Um, when people say, my problem is sugar, I ask them whether they would eat a bag of sugar, whether they could eat a bag of sugar, whether if anyone gave them a tablespoon of sugar or forced them to eat a cup of sugar, or a half a cup of sugar, whether they would find themselves devouring that bag of sugar. And uh, invariably, I mean, once or twice I've met people who have, is it hyperglycemia, who say, yes, they would eat the whole bag. Invariably, people would say, no, I couldn't eat it. And I then say, well, what, what foods cause you the problems that you identify as being sugar foods? And they will inevitably, those people will inevitably say, uh, invariably say, that it is desserts. Uh, it is shortbread, it is cake, it is ice cream, it is uh, all kinds of uh, foods that people characterize as desserts. Some will say hard rock candy, which is all um, sugar, but most, almost most will say it'll be the things like sugars and donut, uh, like donuts and ice cream and stuff like that. And uh, I will always point out that almost, well, every dessert that I've just mentioned contains high amounts of fat mixed with high amounts of sugar. Um, and I will say, what about the fat issues? Do you have that fat issue in other parts of your life? Uh, for instance, do you find yourself eating deep fried foods? Do you find yourself eating uh, French fries? Do you find yourself eating sort of uh, the, the, the fat off steaks or, or, or liking fatty meats? Um, do you like um, 
do you put, uh, I used to joke that I, I used to put popcorn on my butter, not butter on my popcorn, because the butter and the popcorn, and popcorn was kind of like a, a medium for eating the butter. Um, and, and, and one of my analyses for myself was that I was highly addicted by, uh, to and by um, foods that contained high amounts of fat with salt, as well as high, as amount, high amounts of fat with sugar. And so I always do that simply because I think it's worth the exercise of, exact, of figuring out exactly what foods there are. And there are foods, uh, and, and, and very often, the fat content of foods is, is missed. I have met too many people in OA who have abstained from sugar and sometimes from flour, but do not abstain from fats. And I've watched them devour the sort of the American style of baked potato, which is like four times bigger than anything else, devour you know, gobs of butter and sour cream and bacon bits uh, on those things and declare that they're abstinent while not losing the weight by being absent for years, but, but never reaching what apparently for them would be a healthy body weight. And so I'm on this little hobby horse of questioning people. I don't deny that sugar and flour, uh, white refined flour, are nutritionally empty foods. And, and don't, do not have any great value. You know, if you're trying to lose weight, why in the world would you eat something that has, no, has calories and has no nutritional value? Um, and I certainly avoid those things completely. I, they're, they're of no value to me. Uh, but I, I really do think that we don't look at fat content enough. I'm not saying that everyone should. I'm not saying that it's a problem for everyone. But I've, I've learned for myself to look at combinations of foods and tastes. I've also learned to look at things that are like the things that cause me problems. You know, oils don't cause me the same problems as dairy fats. Uh, and yet margarine causes me the same problem as butter because there is that taste like butter. And, and uh, I, I've made a, a, uh, an ice cream from uh, skim milk, Greek yogurt, and frozen blueberries blended that tastes so much like ice cream that I've had to stop eating it because it's just like ice cream. It's got the texture and the taste of ice cream. So we really have to look at, at, at everything. Um, but I, I start off with sponsors often by saying this. You have a diet. And a diet is something, is the area in which you choose to eat. Um, it may be keto. It may be paleo. It may be vegan. It may be vegetarian. It may be a pescatarian. It may be uh, uh Atkins, it may be, I don't know what the heck. I mean, they're Mediterranean. There are all kinds of ways. It may be organic, whatever it is. That's not your plan of eating. That is the environment in which you develop your plan of eating. I'm vegan, and I'm, I'm vegan for reasons that have nothing to do with Overeaters Anonymous. Um, I've just decided not to eat uh, things made, with animal, uh, made from animals. Well, that certainly eliminates right now what I had to eliminate consciously before, it eliminates all dairy products, which means that all the dairy fats that I had eliminated when I wasn't vegan, I no longer have to worry about because I'm vegan. I don't eat dairy. Um, but when I did eat dairy, I had to eliminate all um, dairy, uh, high fat dairy products like butter and sour cream and, and things like that. So you may, you may be on a gluten-free diet for reasons that, uh, that may make sense to you. Uh, but and that means that you won't have uh, flowers, but that doesn't mean that you can eat necessarily French fries, which are gluten free 
Um, just because something's gluten-free doesn't mean that it's something that you should keep on eating. It may be that there are things within the gluten-free diet or the paleo diet or the keto diet or the raw diet or whatever, or the blood, the blood type diet. There may be things that you still have to eliminate. Uh, so I, I work on that with sponsees as well and, and make sure that it's, it's important for them to be absolutely honest with themselves. Uh, then there are eating behaviors, and, and I, I want to spend a, a bit of time talking about them. Um, I have noticed myself, I mean, certainly quantity is an issue in, in, for most people who are either overweight or underweight. There are eating behaviors that even if they eliminate foods that trigger them, uh, still might result in continuing to be underweight or continuing to be overweight. For the underweight people, the, uh, so that they haven't reached a healthy body weight. For those people who are, uh, have not yet reached a healthy body weight by being under what they should be, and when I say what they should be, I mean in conjunction with a medical practitioner, what is a healthy body weight for you? Um, I don't mean what looks right or what looks normal. Um, for those people, it may be behaviors. It may be the bulimic who purges or you know, vomits or exercises or does things that cause the body to uh, lose weight. Or it may be the restrictor, the, the um, anorexic, who has an eating behavior of not eating. Uh, these are behaviors. They're, they're not, it's not the substance. It's, it's, the, uh, uh, it's, it's, the, it's the eating behaviors they indulge in. And, and, and uh, it may be that what they have to understand, because of the fears that might be related to some of their behaviors, that there are some foods they can eat that aren't going to create the triggers, that aren't going to create the cravings. And if they can figure out what does create the cravings and eliminate those, that may relieve them of the fear of, of eating. It may help them in, in, in getting rid of the eating behavior of not eating or of restricting or of purging. On the other side are the people who have not yet reached a healthy body weight because they're overweight. Even if they eliminate all the trigger foods, all the foods that cause them or the ingredients that cause them um, uh, cravings, uh, they may have eating behaviors that cause them volume issues. Uh, many people weigh and measure in our program because that's the way they deal with volume. They may measure calories, they count calories, or they weigh and measure their foods to make sure that the amount that comes into them doesn't cause them excess body weight and allows them to uh, reach and maintain a healthy body weight. Other people develop uh, eliminate certain eating behaviors, which they recognized as having caused them to overeat. I, I, for instance, eliminated chewing between meals. I was following my old weight loss program of uh, chewing uh, popcorn and eating hot air popcorn and uh, chewing gum and stuff, keeping my mouth busy, because I, I, I found that as I did that, my volume of good food, of reasonable food, non-craving foods that I was eating increased. And I also found that I had a ten because I had a have a sort of an oral gratification need. This this whole sense of what goes into my mouth and how it feels and the chewing that goes on. I love that, so I had to eliminate that. So I went to three meals a day, nothing in between, a day at a time, a three hundred one. I also realized that I had a tendency to eat up to the top of my neck, figuratively, uh, as opposed to eating when I'm reasonably full or stopping when I'm reasonably full, and I had to develop a way of doing that. And there are times when there are certain foods I can't measure that way. I can't figure out when I'm full and I have to sort of measure them either by literally measuring them or by 
not going back for seconds or by eating only one plate or something of that sort. At times I've had to not eat while watching TV or not eat while reading because my mind isn't on whether I'm full. Uh, people develop their own sense of what eating behaviors uh, are, are their problem, and they develop that over a period of time um, by trial and error. You know, I, I, my plan of eating has changed over the years um, because I've added to it some foods that I thought I could eat but found out I couldn't. Uh, I've added to it some eating behaviors I thought I could indulge in but found out I couldn't. Um, I've even had friends analyze uh, things and realize that they can eat things they thought they couldn't. Um, and, and so what I say to a sponsee when, I, when we start the steps is that it's important to develop a plan of eating that is honest for them, that is their honesty, not mine. I don't impose anything on them. Uh, I question them. I, I cross-examine them. I make sure that they're as honest as they can be. And they go and they, they work the steps. They will find guaranteed by the time they finish step nine that they have no interest in going back to that, those things they've given up. And I say to them, when you start, there should not be any yellow light foods. If there's an issue, don't eat it. If you doubt, if you're not sure, don't eat it. You'll work the steps. By the time you finish step nine, you can then revisit those foods and decide whether you want them. And that eliminates everything because it's this concept of stopping this submitting to the fact that your body has a problem that you cannot eliminate for the rest of your life. It's a physical disability that is at the heart of what the double whammy is. If we abstain from the things that cause us the problems, then our problem is only mental. And that mental problem is solved by the 12 steps of Overeaters Anonymous. I think that's a good point to stop. Thanks. Lori, thank you so much for this excellent presentation, for your teaching and sharing your personal experience regarding the double whammy and developing a plan of eating. Thank you very much for your service this morning. The share ID for today's presentation, 12,251. That's 12251. Lori's contact information will be offered at the conclusion of this recording, so you'll need to stay tuned for that. We will transition to a question and answer segment. You can pose questions by pressing star 1 to unmute momentarily and giving me your first name, including the first letter of your last name. So you can now press star one to unmute for questions. Morizy. Morizy. Tammy. Kathy K. Kathy Melissa. K. Melissa C. Jody Tammy. EQ. Jody EQ. Paula B. Paula B. Debbie C. Debbie C. Fran. Tammy H. Tammy H. Pete B. Pete B. Fran M. Fran M. Okay, this is who I have thus far. If I missed your name, please shout it out. Maura Z, Kathy K, Melissa C, Jody EQ, Paula B, Debbie C, Tammy H, Pete B, Fran M. 
Barbara S. Barbara S. Thank you very much, Barbara S. Okay, I know I missed you. You're after Debbie C. in the lineup. Okay, everybody mute, please, except for Maura Z. Go ahead, Maura. Thank you, Leah, as always, for your service. Thank you, Laurie. Uh, It's so good to hear you, and, and the lessons I learned from you are always Truly appreciated. I have a question that I think is the elephant in the room. So here goes. You have spoken of people getting abstinent by the time they're in the fourth step. And, of course, my current learning and understanding is that a man's brain must be cleared before he is approached. And so would you please expound a little bit on that, on your experience with having taking with taking someone through the steps and they are not yet abstinent, and how that works. Well, yes, I, I, I mean that that is the elephant in in, in OA's room. I absolutely agree with you. And and my tendency to work with people is to say you got to be abstinent. Uh, I, I even tell a story, one of the saddest stories I know of a friend of mine who had been in AA, uh, OA, and NA, and was a, a big book thumper and knew more about the big book than I. And I done a lot of studying of it but he was he was way beyond me and he asked me to sponsor him and I said what do you need to sponsor for you know what to do he said no I need you to sponsor me and I uh I met with him I said okay let's get a plan of eating and uh and he said I can't get abstinent I said what do you mean he said no no I'm hoping the working the steps will get me abstinent and I, I said and I, I remember saying this I won't tell you exactly what his response was because there may be regulations on the telephone but I said, if you were, you're in AA, let's say someone comes to you and says, please sponsor me. And you say, okay, quit drinking. And, and he says, uh, well, no, I, I'm hoping that by the time I finish the steps, uh, I'll keep on drinking, but I'm hoping by the time I finish the steps, I'll, I'll get sober. And uh, his words were in, in very, uh, well, in nicely put were go away. Uh, and, um, and I said, what do you want me to do for you? That's because that's the equivalent of what you're suggesting uh, to me. He begged me to, to sponsor him. So I said, I don't, I don't know if it'll work or not. And we worked the steps together. He said he had never done a better step five. Uh, never He'd made his amends in eight and nine. Three years later, he committed suicide. Uh, hadn't been abstinent uh, in a way and evidently had had uh, his own breaches or breaks of uh, sobriety in, in both NA and, and AA. And his funeral was, was, was a, a tragic one. There were three or 400 of us 12-step fellows, who not, every one of whom would have jumped at the chance of helping him. We loved him. He was one of the most lovable people I knew in, 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 in OA, and, and we couldn't help him. So my answer to anyone who says, uh, you know, I'm hoping to get abstinent as I work the steps is, um, well, I don't quite use the words he used. But the uh, collective conscience of OA is that it's ideal that by the time, because um, that's in the, the new uh, 12 and 12, that it's ideal that we be abstinent. And I, I have not met anyone who could honestly say that he or she did step four non-abstinent and got abstinent later. There may be such people. I personally don't think OA should stand for the proposition that it's okay not to be abstinent while you work the steps, because I don't know how you can be rigorously honest. Now, you ask about, well, what about step one and between step one and step four? But for me, step one and step two are the concept of despair and hope, problem and solution. You know, that's the Joe and Charlie teaching, that they're, they're not steps you take, they're steps you acknowledge. 
uh, and I think the big book makes that clear. There's steps you spend time on, and there's steps you can spend time on with an alcoholic or a, 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 an addict um, that they acknowledge that they have a problem and they acknowledge that there is hope to the 12 steps. Step three is just a decision. Uh, that's what we've been. Uh, that's what I've been taught, and that's how, the way I, I convey the teachings that I've, I've been taught. That step three is only a decision uh, to go on. You have to understand what it means. You have to understand what it means to give your life uh, uh, and, and uh, w- your will and your life over to care of uh, the, your higher power. But but it's only a decision. The action we take starts really at step four. So my I wouldn't even call it compromise. I would say that my attitude towards how I would describe it is, ideally, you should be abstinent from the beginning. But I have seen so many people get abstinent and not work the steps, and then they relapse because the mind goes back to them. The time you, I think you have to be abstinent in order to have this program work is before you take, you, when you start to take action, and that action is at step four. Because before that, there's no action. There's just despair, step one, powerlessness, step one, um, uh, and a problem, step one. There is hope, step two. There is power, step two. There is solution, step two. And then there is that moment of decision where you say, I am ready for this thing. And uh, yes, it's, it's best that you be clear. Yes, it's absolutely best that you be clear. And I would say that for the people I sponsor, I recommend highly to them that they be clear. And I say to them, experience will tell you whether it works or not. That's the other thing is we're there as guides. We're not there as, as officers of the law. And uh, our job as a sponsor is to give them our experience, strength, and hope, and to do our best to guide them through our own experience to the 12 steps. So I don't make anyone do anything. I tell them my experience. I tell them my story about my friend who committed suicide. I urgently suggested them that they get abstinent. I then let them learn from their own mistakes. And I don't give up on them because I believe that people should learn from their own mistakes. And I think it's sad that within OA, there are people who keep trying to keep, uh, keep eating and keep, uh, keep, uh, not, not try to be abstinent. Uh, while working the steps and, you know, they relapse all the time. Um, But again, you know, my experience is I abstained from everything I knew I had to abstain from. I worked the steps. Step nine gave me that release from wanting to go back to them. I then discovered other things I had to abstain from that I hadn't taken into account when I was being as honest as I could. So was I abstinent or not? Well, I certainly was by my standards abstinent. And every time I find a food that I've been eating that I say to myself, I can't eat this anymore. It's causing me a problem. Does that mean I've not been abstinent for the last 15 years or 25 years? I don't think so. I think I've been abstinent because I've been as honestly abstinent as I can be. I've been as honest about what it is that I have to abstain from. And the fact that I may discover more things that I have to abstain from, that's just life. So that, that's my answer, Maura. I hope it, I, I don't know what you know, think of it, but that's my answer. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Lori. Thank you, Morzi. Kathy K, star one to unmute. 
Thank you, Leah, for your service. And, Laurie, thank you so much. It was terrific to hear you today. I actually had a similar question to Maura, um, but I'll modify it just a little bit so we can add to what you just said. And that is when you have sponsees who are who do continue to struggle uh, with compulsive eating or compulsing food behaviors, how do you help them? What do you say to them um, to help them wrestle with that and perhaps <laughs> get beyond it? Well, I uh, first of all, I have never fired a sponsor, but many, a sponsee, but many sponsees have fired me because I, I am a, uh, a drone in, in certain ways. When people relapse, and remember, I relapsed for seven years, Ms. Brown. I've been absent for over 25 years, but I relapsed for seven years because I would not accept the allergy of the body uh, concept. But um, when, when people relapse, I say to them from the step point of view, from the big book point of view, there are basically two causes of, of, uh, of relapse. One that you must consider is whether or not you have truly eliminated everything that you have to eliminate from your, in your plan of eating. Uh, that is, you, that you are abstaining because it could be that you are, are continuing to indulge in certain foods or certain eating behaviors, which are causing your body to tell you that it wants more. Uh, and, and, and therefore, it's not really a relapse. You haven't been abstinent. So let's look at your plan of eating. Let's see what you've kept, you've kept on it that maybe you shouldn't be. And, and sometimes that really helps people. Uh, sometimes they, they really uh, say, well, you know, to, to be fair, I've been keeping this little comfort food or I've, I've been having this or I, I, maybe I really should be eliminating this thing. I'm not, I, I wasn't sure of, you know, the stuff that was in the yellow, the yellow zone. Um, and the other reason for relapse is that you haven't been working the steps to the best of your ability. Uh, you, 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 you've, you've been leaving something out, you haven't treated it as a priority, you haven't worked it through. I modify that as well by saying you may not have developed, because I always think people should do this as well, a strategy for avoiding day-to-day -day temptations while you're working the steps. You know, I talk about how when you start to be abstinent, between that moment and the moment that you're, you, reach, you finish step nine and the, and the mental obsession is gone, you are in a race with your mind your mind is going to try to find you an excuse to go back. And so you have to develop strategies while you are working the steps through to step nine to keep you from temptation. And it may mean things as radical as getting rid of all the food in your house that is tempting, even though there may be other people in the house who would like to be able to eat it. It may be as radical as going to uh, uh, three meetings a day. Uh, you know, it may be as or it may be as simple as phoning in your food every morning, having a contact buddy. Um, uh, uh, if, you, if there has to be a change, phoning again. It may be as simple as saying you will eat it 20 minutes after you've drunk a glass of water. And, and uh, you know, that, that's, that used to work for me very well, you know, that I, 20 minutes after I drank a glass of water, I didn't want this stuff anymore. Uh, you know, that, that, that momentary uh, thing. But saying to yourself, I will eat it. Uh, so you have to develop strategies. And one of the things I do when people relapse is to say, okay, let's go backwards. Let's see what, what, caused, what, what, what preceded that relapse and see how we could have avoided it. You know, Ruth has spoken at great length about those decisions we make uh, 
before we be, before we uh, eat that compulsive bite, the you know the going through the drive-through. It's not going through the drive-through. It was the journey you chose before you know they put you uh, next to the drive-through. It was the decisions you made uh, not to phone someone or not to deal with the stress issue before you even got in your car. So all these things we we, we go back in time and we we think about those things and develop a strategy for that. So what I do with sponsees is say, okay, let's learn from the experience. What can we learn? The only mistake you make is not learning from your mistakes. So let's learn from your mistakes. Um, because I, I, I don't give up on people. And I don't. And the other thing, by the way, I mean, this is maybe by the board, but I do not start people back on step one in a formal way. Uh, it, you know, if they've relapsed, they're in despair. And if they've come back to me for help, they know the steps give them the hope. So I will, I will say to them, let's get you absent for a few days. Let's get you through, if, assuming that they've been through, they've started step four or step five or something. Let's get you through to step three. Let's make a decision. Let's have you say the step three prayer after a few days of being abstinent and then get right back into those steps. Um, every person is different. And, and I believe that sponsoring a person requires understanding that person understanding how that person learns and experiences life and taking them through at a pace that's right for them, not at the pace that's right for me. So I don't have sort of like a set group of things that they must do. Um, and I don't require them to follow a particular pattern that is the one that I followed. I ask them to work out what's best for them and to learn from their experiences. I hope that helps. Yes. Thank you so much, Lori. Thank you. I, I should say, by the way, uh, just before you talk, I should say, I don't think I'm a great sponsor. Uh, you know, and certainly my, quote, success, end quote, rate is, is no better, no worse than anyone else's. But that's just what I do. Okay, so go on. Sorry, I'm sorry to have interrupted. Thank you, Lori and Kathy Kay. Melissa C., your turn. Hi. Thank you so much. It's Melissa C., recovered in New York. Thank you, Lori. I really learn so much every time I hear you. Um, and I, so like, I, I hope this isn't an outside issue um, because it is kind of a food question. And, and so if it is like Leah, you can let me know and, um, and then I'll ask it offline. Um, but when you were talking about helping people identify um, what their alcoholic um, ingredients are, you mentioned that a lot of people, you know, we say sugar. And that when you really help them look at what foods it was, it's the combination. It's the sugar and the fat for combined. Yeah. Um, for, for many, but, but a whole bunch of people can't eat sugar. I accept that. I don't, I don't okay. question that. But yeah. So, so, like, so here's my question. Um, you know, like, so if somebody has, let's say, that it's a combat, because I, I would agree. I think I see that a lot, too. Um, that it's like the sugar and the fat kind of together or the sugar and the, and the flour together. Um, so, you know, like when we say to um, 100%, you know, um, abstinent, you know, or um, like put it down completely. And then there's the whole, you know, if it's below the fifth ingredient and if it doesn't have those other combinations, oh, how yeah. do you kind of help with somebody identify that? And again, if it's off topic, I, Appreciate well, I, I don't think it is off topic because we're trying to talk about a plan of eating here. And I, I don't have an easy, I don't have a, a pat answer for that. I, I, I say you experiment. I, I, for instance, find myself 
able to eat some sugar even because I, I really don't like it very much. So if it's in there, I have it, uh, but not in great quantities because it sort of gives me a headache. Um, I, I do not, I don't deal in, thing, in, in, in that way. I, I look at foods, I look at ingredients. For instance, everyone needs some fat and everyone needs some kind of sugar content, although it doesn't have to be in, in the form of refined sucrose or refined glucose or dextrose. Um, but uh, I, 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 I mean, there is sugar in vegetables, for goodness sake. Uh, it's just a highly complex kind of sugar. There is carbohydrate in vegetables, even though people say I can't eat carbs. There's carbohydrate in vegetables, uh, it, but it's, it's highly, highly complex. Um, so I, I don't have this sort of, the absolute to me is if you've identified something you can't eat, don't eat it. That's, a, that's an absolute. Um, and, and I say, if, if there's, well, I, you know, I, I, I don't deal with the fifth ingredient stuff because I, it just doesn't make sense to me. It makes sense to other people though, so let them use it. You, you, you know, it's, 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 it's working it through and being an, as honest as you can with yourself. And by the way, I must say, I've never met a person, never in my entire life in OA, ever met a person who could combine a bag of sugar and a bag of flour and eat it uncontrollably. If they added water to it, I've never met a person who did that. I, I've met people who, when they add fat and flour and sugar, have it. But, and I've never met a person who's, eat the, who's ever been able to eat a bag of flour. So I don't know if flour without mixing it with something is a, is a true ingredient problem. It's a waste product. I mean, white flour is, is not particularly a, a, a good thing. And uh, even refined, even any refined grain is not a good thing necessarily for some people. But I, I don't, uh, so, I, so I don't have an easy answer to that question. I, I work with the individual and I work with them to be as honest as they can, because my experience is that if they know in their hearts that they're being as honest as they can, they have the purity of mind, in a sense, that allows them to uh, work the steps. Once they work the steps, then they can use step 10 to figure out if, if they're making any further mistakes. Because they'll be honest, they'll be in contact with their higher power, and they'll be able to make their decisions without being selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened. I don't know if that helps you. Definitely. Thank you. It really does. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks, Melissa C. Jody EQ, star one to unmute. Thank you, Leah, and thank you, Lori. Thank you for this very timely talk. Um, so you said at the end that um, when you begin your abstinence and your steps, when you begin the steps to abstain from all, well, what I understood, abstain from red and yellow light foods. And then once you work the steps, then maybe try eating some yellow light foods. No, no. Analyze no. whether those yellow lights should be, continue to be red or, or, or might be green. Uh, that, that's all. Uh-huh. If you ha- I, I, I don't say try to eat them. I say uh, do an analysis of them. It might mean you experiment. It might it might mean you don't. It, it's it's it, it, when you when you're when you uh, finish step nine and you're on to the maintenance and growth steps of ten, eleven, and twelve. That's the time when you can start looking at things and deciding what you want to do. 
usually people get to that point and they say, no, these yellow foods have become red foods. Uh, I know I shouldn't eat them. I'm glad you told me not to eat them, you know, or not to indulge in them. Uh, you know, but I, I, the hope that you give to them at, at, at step one is that, well, maybe you can have them later on. By the time they finish step nine, they don't want them, <laughs> you know? So that's what I said. No, I don't say you should go back to them at all. Not at all. Does that make sense? Um, that's not what I understood you to say. Oh. Um, okay. Well, I'm glad that you, you asked me to yeah. clarify because that is what I, that's what I hoped to say. So, so, so say that again, then. I'm still not quite clear. I say to people, don't monkey around with yellow foods. My experience is, I say to them, they can do what they want. But my experience, I say to them, is that it is not worthwhile to have yellow foods while you're working the steps for the first time. Get rid of the yellow foods and abstain from them. And you can see after step nine, after you've been released from the bondage of food, whether those foods uh, are foods that you could eat in moderation or not. That's what I meant to say. Okay. My experience is that most people who do that don't go back to them. That's my experience. But, you know, mm -hmm. some do. And they don't have a problem because they're honest. They can look at those foods now without being selfish, dishonest, self-seeking and frightened. And they're able to sort of say, no, it's, it's really, uh, it's not even a yellow food. It's a food I could have a little bit of now that I've eliminated all the other things that, that caused my problems. I, well, I mean, how it's about, possible that that could have, yeah. Right. I've seen, I've seen it happen and I've experienced this myself that I've gone on a very strict, uh, maybe like a gray sheet type of plan with absolutely no complex carbohydrates, only vegetables. And then Which are complex so carbohydrates, much, by the way. Right. Vegetables are complex carbohydrates. That's true. That's true. I yeah. guess what I mean is more concentrated complex carbohydrates, like root vegetables. Um, okay. But so much weight is lost that the person gets too thin. And, yes. and there's, there's a, lot, a low blood pressure and things like that. Well, um, I, I don't suggest case, anyone... Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I'm in that sorry. case, maybe what might have been perceived as a yellow light food might have to be reintroduced. And, and then because the steps have been worked and there is sanity, maybe at that point they can handle them. Oh, I agree with you. But I, I may say that I would ask uh, my sponsee, have you ever gorged on parsnips? Uh, because if you haven't gorged on parsnips, why would you eliminate them? Mm -hmm. um, because I, I don't accept that any person's diet is my diet. And I don't accept that someone would take gray sheet or take any other sheet and, and take that whole as bolus. I, I was, uh, I'm aware of what the nutritionist that was hired by OA said about gray sheet, gray sheet in and of itself, that she could not, uh, it, because we were looking at the dignity of choice pamphlet, and she said, I cannot in all conscience accept gray sheet because it is not nutritionally be nutritionally acceptable. Now, whether that's true in general, I don't know, but that's what the, the nutritionist that OA hired said. And the, the equivalent of gray sheet that appears in the Dignity of Choice pamphlet has had a few things added to it to make it more nutritionally acceptable to that nutritionist. Um, so I, I don't accept that someone else's plan of eating is my plan of eating or is my sponsee's plan of eating. And just to follow a diet, is not to develop a plan of eating that eliminates the things that cause the phenomenon of craving. 
And that's what's important. It's not that you have a diet that allows you to lose weight. Uh, it, it is that you have a plan of eating that eliminates the things that cause you problems. So, you know, I, uh, so my, uh, I, I think you're right. I would avoid that problem by not encouraging someone to adopt someone else's plan of eating holus bolus. Without the analysis of well, what does cause your cravings. You know, yes, uh, parsnips cause me uncontrollable cravings when they're mixed with all kinds of butter and herbs. Okay. <laughs> and salt, you know, well, what if you eliminated the butter and the salt and roasted parsnips? Would you eat them uncontrollably? Probably not. I love parsnips. I love roasted parsnips, but uh, certainly I would not eat them with butter and salt. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Does that help? Yes, it does. Thank you, okay. Lori. Well, thank you. Thanks, Jody EQ, for the question. Paula B, star one to unmute. Hi, thank you. Thank you, Lori, very much. Um, I'm hearing an echo in the phone. Yes. Everybody mute, please, except for Paula B. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Lori, I have been um, messing around with trying to figure out what plan should be my plan, talking to some people in another food plan. And so my my biggest challenge and problem has been I'll listen to one person and they'll say, well, you know, you shouldn't have this or I don't have this or this is how you're going to lose weight. And so I got caught up in everybody else's stuff. But what I learned from you today on the phone is you don't tell someone what they can or can't eat if we're honest we'll know what we can what we should not have and what we would binge on. And I guess I have um come to the road where I can't do this anymore by myself. And so I had set my clock to make sure I was up to get on this meeting this morning. And um I've been trying to get in um to the website of Vision for You and trying to get a list of sponsors. I still can't get in and I wrote to somebody so I'll get numbers at the end. But I guess my question to you is, what was, what did it take for you to all of a sudden have this click in your mind, like, this is how I'm going to be free from this constant going back and forth, trying all these different food plans, that this is going to work for me, this 12-step, this because I'm in another 12-step program, and mm -hmm. I can't listen to people anymore that are outside of these rooms because they don't get it. But I mean, I just, I love listening to you today. So I'd like to know what it, what it took for you not to stop beating yourself up, stop being so afraid or being judged and decide this is it. I'm going to get better. And I kind of hit my bottom. Well, th thank you for the question. I, I mean, let, let me, let me just say, you talk about listen to everyone else. You listen to yourself with the help of a guide, you know, to, to really sort of take you through uh, what, what you're thinking. But I, I believe you have to be honest with yourself. And I really do believe that one of the dangers in OA is people imposing plans of eating on other people. Uh, I, I think it's a terrible thing. And I've watched people struggle with, uh, with uh, plans of eating that just don't fit their own issues. It allows them to, I mean, the original grace sheet allowed you to eat, what, six pieces of bacon a day or something like that. Um, well, 
I mean, how unhealthy can you get um, uh, with that? So anyway, so let's, let's go back. What it took for me was seven years of relapse and seven years of not wanting to believe that there was something wrong with my body. And uh, <clears throat> it also took uh, a brave woman, the shyest person in the OA rooms, but a, a really recovered person, to challenge me because I was being killed with kindness in the rooms of OA by people asking me how I was. And I'd say, fine. And they'd say, terrific. I'd love to hear you talk. And I was talking and talking and talking and gaining weight. And she, you know, the, the, the shyest person in the room, prayed for two weeks and said to me, how are you, Lori? I said, fine. And she looked at me and she said, I mean, really? <laughs> to me. And that, that wonder, I mean, I, I love her so much and she helped me. I, I can't tell you how much she helped me by being both kind and loving and honest uh, to me and challenging me, whereas people wouldn't challenge me. So that's what got me into this moment of submission. And then I, I, I was, uh, began to study the, the, the big book with someone who had, been, uh, had been in AA, who had been in AA for a number of years, sober in AA, who had studied the book as a set of directions. And we started to study it line by line. And I got to that must believe that our bodies are sickened as well as our minds. And I started to say, well, if the big book is a set of directions, I must believe that. Let me think about what that means for me. And that's where I helped my friend who had just joined OA to a new AA. You, you get sober in AA, but didn't know how to get abstinence. We both worked together to figure out what it is we should abstain from. Turns out his abstinence was abstaining from fast foods because that's what he ate. Once he stopped eating fast foods, he lost a lot of weight. Um, so you have to listen to yourself. It's important if you can to have a guide sort of take you through your plan of eating and say, is this really the problem? But boy, following someone else's plan of eating, it's just not, in my, in my experience, it's not productive. It's, it's a control issue. And I don't think we as sponsors have a right to control our sponsees. It's not submission to the program, it's submission to us. And I don't think anyone should be submitting to us. Um, we just look for honesty and, and the willingness to learn from our mistakes. Does that help you at all? Paula, you'll need to press star one to unmute to respond. Um, yes, it does help because I've been working um, with a holistic nutritionist for the last two years out of state. I've never met her. I'm not losing one drop because... She, it's not her fault. It's, it's me trying to fit into what she says, this is the best ketogenic for your health issue. This is that. You should have this. You should have these vitamins. So then when I don't do all that, then I binge on a jar of peanut butter and a whole bunch of nuts. And then it's just a vicious, terrible cycle. And a friend of mine said, why don't you go back to what you did in the first place to lose weight? Well, that was in another food plan food program, but that doesn't work anymore. You know, I'm getting, mm -hmm. every, everything changes. So yeah. I think I have been afraid really to dig deep down inside to really take a look at myself, to look at my issue having food problems. And um, um, my friend came to town a few weeks ago. I wrote her letters in my 20s. I'm 59 years old now. And every single letter she saved, and I have all these letters in 
every single letter was about what diet I was going to do in my 20s, how much I hated myself, Scarsdale. Oh, and I would say I have 45 days till Christmas. Every There is not one letter that I didn't say how much I hated myself or talk about a food plan or weight. So I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I'll be 60 in February. I have like 30, 40 pounds to lose. I already lost 100 before. Mm. So I'm like doing all this stuff in my head, looking at the calendar, feeling this pressure. And I really need to get some numbers after this meeting and have people that I can trust because it's very painful to open up, look inside, and realize, you know, you were a wounded person and that there are some changes that you have to make. And I really want to have freedom. I'm so tired of talking about my weight and my food all my life. If you ask anybody who knows me, they'll say, well, what does she talk about the most? Well, what's the next food plan? It's exhausting. Thank you. the, The steps will give you the answers. Listen to yourself. Work with someone else. Abstain from the problems. I'll tell you, as a peanut butter addict, do not eat peanut butter. <laughs> I've yeah. eaten an entire jar of peanut butter. So, and that's fat and salt. Yeah. You know, and it's refined fat. Like nuts, unsalted nuts may not have the same problem as salted nuts. Who knows? But yeah. peanut butter? Oh, yeah. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Thank you. Good luck. Good luck. Thank you. Thanks, Paula. Please register on the member contact list, and you'll have access to other members. I'm trying. Thank you very much. Okay. Well, assist you in that effort. Thank, Thank you very much. Debbie C, star one to unmute with your question, please. Debbie C. Okay, perhaps she had to step away off the line. Barbara S. Hello, this is Barbara S. from New York. Um, It's quite a blessing. Thank you. Do you hear me? I hear you well. Okay, thank you. Uh, Barbara S., um, I want to say I usually go to my face-to-face meeting this morning and wasn't able to for a few reasons, and it was such a blessing when I turned on to this meeting and I immediately uh, recognized your voice, Larry. I have your book and I've listened to you. Either way, um, I'm, as a lot of us are, uh, a people pleaser, and when I write down my food, my sponsor has been very, very happy helpful and uh, suggested that I go back to my uh, diabetic notes from nutritionists, which I have. Um, I'm just afraid, like yesterday, because of the people pleasing, I haven't lied to my sponsor, but I had this urge to leave something out that I did yesterday. Um, I was doing cooking for Monday, and I did a uh, making turkey meatballs, and I t- tasted two of them, and that was for my snack. So I immediately said, oh, no, my sponsor's going to be mad. She doesn't get mad. This is all in my head. I mean, she, she'll, if it's something that really sounds like a relapse, she'll tell me to, you know, read the uh, doctor's opinion again. But I, the logical part of me sees it as a uh, snack that's a protein, and it's fine. 
In the past, I would sort of binge on it, but not really bad binge. Like I'm supposed to have two, I would have four. Um, And also uh, for dinner, and I usually don't do this, I had a Lean Cuisine turkey TV dinner, and I was going to... Barbara? Yes? Sorry to interrupt you. Just in the uh, interest of time, could you... Uh, boil things down to a question. Okay. Sure. I, 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 I had what I would consider fine, but I'm afraid that it, my sponsor might say, well, should have you not had that? It's the guilt. I, I'm always hard on myself, and it was the guilt that it wasn't 150%. It was 99%, and it was probably 100 but I'll never give myself 100 So, my question is, it, I don't even know what the hell my question is. Excuse Maybe, me. It's a, your guilt is the, sounds like the operative word in what you're talking about. And you're people pleasing and you want to please your sponsor. You don't want to feel guilty. You don't want right. to. Right? Right. How do you right. deal with guilt? People pleasing, even though I know I was fine. Like, okay. what if my, she doesn't know? Well, my, I mean, look, my, my, my simple answer is that the steps have the answers. So I, I don't know where you are in your steps, but if, you're, if you can get abstinent as honestly I, as you can, I don't think right. it matters whether you've been abstinent for one, one week or five years. If you haven't worked steps four through nine, you won't get the answer to your question, and you, won't, you will always end up feeling guilty and being a people pleaser. Um, so my answer to your, to your question is do the steps. They'll give you the answers and, and, and do the steps, especially steps four through nine, which will deal with your issues of guilt and, and uh, people pleasing and all that. At least that's what they have for millions of people in this world. And so I don't have an answer personally. I have a very practical answer. And, okay. and if you, if you are, and if you've already done step nine and you, and you feel as if you're, you've been released from uh, most of the foods, but there still are other issues, time for step 10, which is steps four through nine all over again, and do the same things you did, but in the context of recovery. But it's through the steps that you work through the issues relating to your resentments and your fears and your relationships with others. And, and, uh, and, and the big book provides concise directions for doing them. And um, they're not always easy, but... Uh, 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 but they, they are pretty simple. And all those issues that you've just raised are issues that I would say to my sponsee, put them on your step four resentment list. I, I feel guilt. I don't think I'm ever perfect, perfect enough. Um, I want to please my sponsor. Those are resentments. And Thank figure you. out where you're selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened in relation to them. Yeah, I have to add my sponsor, but it's not really her, it's me. But thank you very much. Okay. You, oh, you see, don't just add... Don't add a person. You can add things about yourself that bother you as a resentment. Because remember, resentment is people, institutions, or principles. Well, a principle is a fact that you wish weren't true. One of the facts is I want to please people too much or something like that. Or I want to make sure my sponsor's not mad at me or something like that. You don't have to, I mean, your sponsor's not there. It's you who's there. But you're not writing yourself down as a resentment. You're writing down facts about yourself that bother you. Hope that helps. Thank you very, very much. Thank you for being there and answering. Thank you, Barbara S. Tammy H. Star one, time you please. 
Tammy H. All right. Let's go to Pete B. Pete. <laughs> Good morning. Can you hear me okay? I hear you yep. well. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you for your service. Thank you, Laurie. Uh, Pete B., Recovered Compulsive Overeater. Uh, that okay. Great talk. Really appreciate it. Um, just real quickly, I, I, I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on, you know, in the doctor's opinion, it says that men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. That effect, I'm mm-hmm. assuming, is the, the sense of ease and comfort or the euphoria associated with alcohol. And it says mm-hmm. that the sensation is so elusive that while they admit it injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. Is the injurious part of it the euphoria, the sense of ease and comfort, or the phenomena of craving that, ha- that, that happens as a result of taking those substances in? Oh, I would, I would go beyond that. I mean, I think that we have to, and I didn't talk about this, we have to acknowledge the injurious nature of, this, of the effects of the sensation, which is that we want more. And the injurious effects of alcohol are well documented in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And the injurious effects of, of, of our relationship with, uh, with eating are documented well in our literature and as well in our own experiences. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, um, I didn't talk about the desperation we should feel, and maybe I should have, that, that you know, we are slow motion addicts. Uh, compared to some of the more dramatic addictions uh, that exist in, uh, within the 12-step fellowship. Uh, we inch our way slowly, inexorably, and often uh, weakly uh, 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 to, to our destined end if we continue with our addiction. You know, because whether we undereat or overeat, uh, we are lethargic uh, people who gradually lose parts of our physical being and become more and more dependent upon people. Uh, to to keep us alive, uh, and we run the risks of the strokes and the heart attacks and the and the uh, losing of limbs and the and the uh, hip replacements and uh, uh, and the breaking of bones and, and and all that that makes us slow motion death uh, machines. You know, compared to the more dramatic uh, addictions, which which you know the the mere ingestion could cause a death. You know. Um, the, the dangers of the meth addict and the fentanyl and things of that sort. So I would say that that's the injurious part. It's not, it's not the sense of ease and comfort. Uh, a lot of people get a sense of ease and comfort uh, uh, from, uh, from alcohol, um, but aren't addicted to it. But alcoholics get this sense of ease and comfort when they drink too much. Uh, whereas, People get, uh, you know, non-alcoholics don't get that. They get a sense of unease and discomfort. Same with my wife in relation to too much food. She might love food, but but at a certain point, it's too much for her. Whereas in my entire lifetime, I don't remember ever having too much food. Um, So I would say the injury is the long-term injury. I, I would say that that's probably what the doctor is talking about. I could be wrong. I appreciate your, I I appreciate your insight on that. Thank you. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about why we should be feeling despair. I mean, the, the double whammy is important, but it's the effect of that double whammy and, and on our entire lives that really should spur us to the desperation that we're killing ourselves. And we should take our illness as seriously as the alcoholic and the drug addicts take theirs. And, and the fact is, in a way, we don't, generally speaking, take it as seriously. I'm so glad you asked that question. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Pete. 
Fran M. Star one ton mute. Fran M. Okay, perhaps she had to step away from the line. Questions for Lori. You can pose your question by pressing star one time mute. This will be the final invitation for questions this morning. Linda from Massachusetts. Linda, what's your Kim Hill? Linda, Linda G. Massachusetts. Linda G. Okay, Kim, your initial, please. L. L. Thank you. Who else? Signe G. Stacy T. Cindy R. Mindy R. Cindy, Cindy R. Cindy R., thanks for the correction. Joy L. Joy L. Okay, that's a great group. Thank you. Linda G., you're up. Everybody else, please mute your line. Thank you. Um, thank you, and it was really, really wonderful to hear you today and to hear the questions and the answers. Um, so my question is, how do you, when you're you're working step one with your sponsees, how do you define unmanageability um, in step one, um, being restless, irritable, and discontent, or the bomb of what's happened as a result of the compulsive overeating. Um, thank sure. you. That's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, I'm not sure I think of either of those two. Uh, and again, I really treat every spot C as different, and I work with them as to what their issues are. They come to OA with a problem, and they know they, they want a solution, so I, I work with them on what their problems are um, in, relation, in, in relation to food. I mean, it may be that they, they, they know that, they're li- they, that they have a life-threatening uh, illness ahead of them, or maybe they're in the throes of it, and they, they know that they've got to lose weight, but they may not understand the unmanageability because of the double whammy that you can't stop once you've started and can't stop from starting. On the other hand, they may come because they think they need a good diet, um, but they don't treat it as seriously as, as they would treat an alcoholic. And they, they might come as an alcohol, as a member of AA or a member of NA or, or all the other sort of more dramatic uh, 12-step groups and think about what this piddling group of uh, overeaters are and sort of not treat it as being serious. That, that happens a lot. So for them, I would deal more on the the long-term effects, as I just did with in, in, when I when Pete and I were t- talking, uh, because they have to hear that, and frankly, I think most of us in OA have to hear that as well. Um, so I don't I don't have a, an easy answer. For me, every sponsee is an individual, and I have no set way of talking with them. I read the book with them. I read it at their pace, not mine. Um, depending on how well they read and how well they retain. Uh, how well they can understand the archaic and uh, slightly patriarchal, slightly patriarchal language and slightly Christian language of the the big book. Um, how well they can handle it, and I work with them at their at their pace, urging them to go as quickly as they can. <coughs> so I don't have an easy answer to that. 
Sorry. Thank you, Linda G. Kim L. Star one to unmute. Good morning, Laurie. Thank you for your share. Um, I have a question. I was wondering if you have had experience with this situation and what you would recommend. Um, I've been in OA, kind of in and out of OA since 1987. And my food plans... um, have always been kind of like the, I guess you would call the OA sister programs where they give you a food plan. And you had mentioned one before that wasn't very nutritionally sound. Um, And over the last few years, I've developed a lot of digestive problems. So everything that I ate in the past or everything that's on those plans, I don't mean every single thing, but a lot of foods on those plans are very difficult for my body to digest right now, and it causes a lot of pain. So it's been recommended to me to eat foods that are a little bit more processed um, because my body just can't tolerate the foods that take really long to break down in my digestive system. So how I'm having a really hard time Getting beyond that, my my sponsor has been recommending certain other types of food, but I also have that all-or-nothing mentality, and when I would break my food plans or go off my abstinence in the past, it would be, you know, just an all-or-nothing. So how, how do you recommend getting beyond the fear and trying some different types of food? And I'm not talking about um, substituting donuts for oatmeal i mean I you know something yeah no i do understand it i you know a friend i have a very close friend in oa whose digestive system is so different from mine uh you know i i search for the high fiber foods that's what i do especially as a vegan i get them right well i don't have to get them there are a lot of vegan foods that you can buy that are highly processed but i for me high fiber is important but for for my friend and obviously for you high fiber can be uh, very upsetting um digestively so my, my answer comes back to how I started. You, do, you get a diet that's right for you. And, and then within that diet, you figure out what you can't eat and then eat what you can. Um, and, and so the getting rid of the fear is that you know you're eliminating the things that cause you problems, everything else you can eat in whatever, however you do it in order to reach and maintain a, a healthy body weight. I don't know if that helps, but that's my easy answer. Um, we could go into more detail if you wanted, but let's say you go to a nutrient. You see, you see, my sponsor gives me a food plan. Where does a sponsor get off providing professional advice on what's reasonable and what's healthy? I don't understand that. That's an outside issue. Uh, you go to a nutritionist. You go to some expert who says to you, these are your symptoms. This is what I would recommend for you. Then within that, Within that diet that your nutritionist provides, you then analyze, well, are there any foods in there that have caused me the phenomenon of craving? And if there are, you don't eat them. And you work around that. And you say to your sponsor, your nutritionist, I can't eat this stuff, so what, what can I have instead? And, and, and that should provide you the, the freedom from fear, at least for the time being. I mean, obviously, put the fear into your step four list. I mean, it's, it's just... You have fears, put them in your step four list. You'll eventually 
ask yourself the question, what would my higher power have me be in relation to that fear? And the answer is to work the steps to have and to have some faith in, in my higher power. Um, but that should give you freedom from fear because you know you're eliminating the things you should be eliminating. Now, volume is an issue and, 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 and uh, you, you, you may have to weigh and measure in order to make sure that you get what you need and no more, depending whether you have to lose or gain weight. Um, and, uh, you know, and you have to deal with that. But, but really, you know, accepting someone else's definition of a plan for you is, is not only unfair to you, it is contrary to the group conscience of Overeaters Anonymous, which says very clearly, do not accept someone else's plan of eating. It might not be the right one for you. All through OA, there are all these people, these food, um, these food controllers, and I don't understand them. Sure, they believe, well, frankly, all over OA, there are people who think that they have found the one solution to everything and believe it applies to everyone. And, and that's true in the big book uh, world as well. Uh, you know, the big book, it saved my life. But I, I know people who don't use the big book and they are my mentors. Some of them are my mentors. So I, I'm not here to say that the big book is the answer for everyone. Although, boy, it's an answer that certainly speaks to my heart and speaks to the heart, obviously, of almost everyone in a vision for you. But, but food plans and all that, no one should control anyone else. Only God could control people. Uh, and and you get and you get controlled by your higher power through working the twelve steps to get rid of your own ego issues and control issues. And uh, I, I I get really upset by when I hear people trying to control people within OA. Sorry for getting on that little soapbox. Does that help? Kim. Kim yes. It's, thank you. It's, uh, I'm sorry. Yes, thank you very much. Thanks for the <laughs> question. Signing G. Star one to unmute. Um, hi, Lori and um, Leah. Thank you so much for your service. Uh, this is Signy G, uh, gratefully recovered in Greenville, South Carolina. Um, I just wanted to ask, I wonder if you've ever had experience with dealing with a sponsee who has no specific alcoholic foods, but is dealing only with behaviors. Um, I've begun working with someone who um, has suffered from binge eating um, and is dealing with that by, you know, scheduling meals and, um, and not engaging in that binging behavior, but, but does not seem to be able to identify any specific foods from which they should abstain. So I just wonder if you have any experience with that. Yeah. I, I have not much, but I mean, I've had one or two people I've worked with and talked to who, who have that issue. I, I don't think it's necessarily true that everyone has um, that. I mean, I, I, let me put it this way. I believe that eating behaviors should be treated as an allergy of the body. Maybe that's the, the one thing I, 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 another thing I should have said that I didn't say when I, you know, I have this need to chew all the time. I know that it's an oral gratification need textures are important to me. The, the feeling of what's going on in my mouth is important to me. For all I know was caused by the fact that when my mother was nursing me, she was told it's every four hours, not on demand, and, um, and that I was, may have been weaned too early. But 30 years of psychotherapy will never get rid of my physical need to chew all the time. 
So I classify my physical need to chew all the time as, a, as not just a behavior, but as an allergy of the body. It's so ingrained in me that it can't be gotten rid of, and therefore it is a physical symptom. So yes, it is entirely possible that in this world, there are people who have behavior issues which are so ingrained in them that they are like physical things. Once they start, they can't stop. Now, my experience within most of OA is that people also have foods or food ingredients, but it is entirely possible that there are people who have only behavior issues and that what the person you described as doing works for that person. Time will tell. I mean, do they reach a healthy body weight? Do they have any cravings? Are there, uh, I, you know, are they dry drunks or are they sober drunks? Uh, you know, uh, if, if, if after they work step nine, they don't return to those eating behaviors and they're still having problems with wanting to eat a little bit of that or a little bit of this, maybe it's time to suggest that they also look at ingredients or they look at particular foods. But I work with people where they are. And if they're as honest as they can be, I'm not going to impose on them an allergy of the body that they don't have. You know, just because I may be allergic to shrimp, I'm not, but just because I may be allergic to shrimp doesn't mean everyone is allergic to shrimp. Does that help? That's, that's incredibly helpful. Thank you very much. And, and I think that that was sort of my instinct as well, but it was also so contrary to my own experience, um, you know, that I just wanted to kind of make sure that I was on the right track. So thank you. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for the question. It, it enabled mm-hmm. me to say something that I should have said earlier. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you, Signet G. Stacy T, star one, ten mute. Good morning, Laurie. Stacy T, thanks so much for Hi. your service. Hello. Uh, question for you. When starting to work with someone, <clears throat> I've heard a couple different things. One is uh, that they should have their identified binge foods, binge ingredients, um, identified with on a diet doctor or nutritionist um, and or um, it's the rare, more rare occasion that a sponsor um, guide is um, more open to going through that uh, with them. And also a little bit less common as over time that I'm perceiving that uh, guides want to take people's food, that they want to just stick completely to to the big book and the food gets handled outside of uh, big book study. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that. Thanks. So th- this is your experience. You're asking me to comment on it. Yes, please. Right. Yeah. That's not what I said. Okay, fine. Okay. Uh, well, um, I say that people have to develop a plan of eating that eliminates the foods and or food ingredients and or eating behaviors that cause them compulsive cravings cause them the phenomenon of craving, okay? And that they should be as honest as they can with that. If they work with a nutritionist, well and good. I did not, although I have, one, uh, a couple of years ago, I consulted with a nutritionist because I was going into the, 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 the vegan, um, um, uh, I was going vegan and I, I wanted to make sure that I, I was getting everything I needed. Um, I never consulted with a, with a, a sponsor I developed a plan of eating based on my honesty. I, I talked it over, but, you know, I, so I, 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 I don't think it's an outside issue 
to develop a plan of eating, I think a sponsor has a duty to work with a person to help them develop their own plan of eating that eliminates the foods and or food ingredients and or eating behaviors that cause compulsive cravings and to find a way to make that livable. Uh, but it's the individual that has to find it and how that individual finds it is really up to him or her. What I do say is that the diet that may be chosen by a professional is the environment within which you work to see what else to eliminate. Because most professionals do not accept, nor is it scientifically accepted, that there is this phenomenon of craving. You know, especially with compulsive eaters. It's much easier anecdotally to say alcohol of any kind has to be abstained from than it is to say, well, there's this, this group of people who seem to find it important to get rid of X and this group of people who find it important to get rid of Y. You can't scientifically replicate uh, or do any kind of experiments with compulsive eaters because we're all unique um, uh, in terms of our, our eating issues. So there's no science on this issue and it is uh, an art and it's, a, and it's ultimately a function of honesty. So that's my sort of comment on, on what you've talked about. I don't, have I covered what you wanted me to cover or you bet. did I miss something? Nope, okay. you got it. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you, Stacey T. Leah S., your turn. Hello. <clears throat> Hello. Hi. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. Um, and thank you, Lori. Um, so I've been listening very carefully to what your responses are to the questions, and I'm trying to formulate my own question. Um how do you define um, how do you define uh being um well I hear this many times on the line and I practice it myself. Um I don't think that uh my proteges, my sponsees can accept the steps unless they are totally abstinent. And um, I didn't hear that that in your uh, that I, I heard that you you were starting to work with 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 uh, proteges even though they were not abstinent. So that's my question. Well, when people come uh, to OA or they come to to uh, they ask me to sponsor them, they often aren't abstinent. Uh, I work with them to get them abstinent, uh, to help them get abstinent. I mean, h- how do you find a, a, a drunk? Uh, you know, what did Bill and Dr. Bob do? They went to drunk wards. And sure, for the most part, the drunk wards they went to, the people had been sober for a day or so or two days. Uh, Bill was sober for, Bill was not sober when Abby went to see him. Uh, and Dr. Bob wasn't sober when Bill went to see him. And Dr. Bob didn't get sober um, and, until he, I mean, look at Dr. Bob's experience. If you want to look at the, at the issue of, of sobriety, Dr. Bob made his amends three hours after he had his last beer and uh, two days, two days, maybe three days after he had been through a huge binge. He made his, he made his amends. He said to Bill at the door of the hospital after Bill gave him a beer to steady him up, uh, Bill, I'm going to go through with this thing. And then he made his amends and he, hasn't, he didn't have a drink after that time. So 
you look at the history of AA and you look at the speed with which they worked the steps because of the desperation that they had and maybe because of the time they had, it was depression time um, and people weren't working two, three jobs. Um, and I say it can happen sort of all at once. But yeah, I meet with people who are in the throes of, 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 of binge eating and I talk to them about abstinence. I talk to them about what's necessary. And I say to people, there are th- I think there are three plans that you have to develop before you really embark on the steps. Number one is a plan of eating that clearly eliminates the foods and or ingredients and or eating behaviors that cause you compulsive eating. Number two is, the, uh, is, a, is a timeline, a sense of how long it's going to take for you to finish step nine. Work that through. Make it a step five appointment even so that you have something to work backwards from so that you know you have to hang on for only X number of weeks or months. And that, that then becomes the equivalent of a diet. And third, develop a strategy for eliminating temptation, for dealing with temptation, uh, uh, for daily temptations. And let's work with you on all that. And then you, you, you start the steps and you work your abstinence. And, and I have, I, I mean, I don't think I'm doing anything different from the early AAers. Uh, you know, you... you, you uh, you know, the big book says it's, it's often advisable that people have a clear mind uh, before they can accept this, but that doesn't mean they can't accept it while they don't have a clear mind. Bill accepted what Abby had to say to him while he was drunk. And he mulled over it. And he was drunk when he went to the mission and he was drunk when he went to the town's hospital to dry out. Um, and it was in, in the town's And he did had done his step one and step two while drunk. And then it was, at, it was at the moment in the town's hospital, as Bill describes in Bill's story, there I gave myself to God, step three, uh, as, as he would have me. Then I confessed my sins to my, then I, I made a list of my sins and I confessed them to my, to my friend and I became willing to have them removed. Well, that's only in the hospital after you've been dried for a couple of days. So I, I don't have, yeah. so let Granted, me just, just finish. I, yeah, yeah. I just I, want to finish I, this. Yeah. I don't have a specific set of, absolutes i work with people and people are complex and 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 i appreciate your answer but but i see i i i heard through your answer uh, this is as much time that i can give to this protege and then we work on it and then we 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 meet the next day in order to find out what what that person uh, is is uh, of the opinion of what of what what they have read and whatever so i don't have that time period that bill had uh, way uh, granted yes if i do get a, a very desperate person who who is so desperate to continue right away and work on and I have had that but yes it is it is it is um it is up to the time that you spend and and the understanding rather that you get from 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 each other's in order to move on thank you for absolutely thank you no thank you. I, I agree with that and i should say the way i sponsor is is, you, is unique to me because i'm a unique person and the way someone else sponsors is unique to them and they should sponsor the way from their own experience and heart and not from mine uh, so what i do is what i do and what they do is what they do and god you know we we do it because we need to do it because that's what step 12 is all about whether someone else recovers is up to them not up to us. Thank you. Thank you, Leah F., for your question. Cindy R., 
it's your opportunity for a question. Star one to unmute, Cindy R. Okay, let's move on to our final name for this morning for a question, Joy L. Hi, this is um, Joy L. from St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, thank you so much for your service. And, um, Lori, thank you for, um, oh, just for your wisdom. Um, it very much feels like, you know, a, a, some prayers were answered as I was trying to um, really just ask, ask my higher power um, about getting even more clean and clear with my food plan. So my question is, I am... Um, I'm going to be uh, speaking with a, a new nutritionist to me um, actually later today. And what I realize is that um, part of what I'm recovering from is I'm recovering from worshiping um, and rebelling against uh, a food plan that was given to me by a sponsor um, in, in a segment of, of our program that was, was very strict. And I got a lot of physical recovery, but I was always, you know, in the back of my mind, um, thinking like, wait a minute, is this exactly what I should be doing? And so as I came back um, and, you know, I'm newly recovered, very thankful, but want, wanting to make sure that um, I can just get as clean as possible. And, you know, I've made my list of my red, yellow, and green foods. And um, my question is like, what information would you um, – would you recommend, you know, sharing with uh, with this uh, nutritionist? I heard you say something about um, sharing what my symptoms are, which is actually really helpful, and that may be enough, um, you know, because I, I still have quite a bit of, of physical recovery to be in the right size body, um, but I'm surrendered. I'm not worried about it, but I know that I have to work a plan, and what I'm wanting to remove is the doubt of knowing that me just still using a, a food plan that was just given to me um, it is not making me feel uh, like I can just really, really, truly surrender because I'm constantly like kind of doubting, like, is this right? Or, and I, I need it to be clear. So if you have any uh, recommendations or suggestions um, around um, what, I was, what I might uh, share with a nutritionist to help me would be great. Thank you. Okay. Well, I, 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 that's a great question. Uh, I think it would be good for the nutritionist as well uh, as for you to share with the nutritionist this concept of the allergy of the body as it applies to you. Uh, that is not assert that there is such a thing in general, but assert that for you, certain foods and certain food ingredients and certain eating behaviors are things you can't indulge in, even though they might seem to her to be reasonable. Sure. Uh, and that you remember if Overeaters Anonymous and that that's what Overeaters Anonymous is, is uh, starts with. It's the equivalent of sobriety and alcohol. You know, the example is you could, nutritionists might say, it's okay for you to have a glass of wine once a week. Yeah, sure, it's okay for most people, but for the alcoholic, it's not okay. So there's your analogy. Right. Um, so I, I would say, first of all, it's good for the nutritionist to learn about these things because as I understand it, very few schools of nutrition teach the concept of the allergy of the body because it's not a scientifically uh, established fact, uh, but right. it certainly is, is true for people. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's true. The other thing is that you should be asking, you should be talking to her about the notion of trigger foods and trigger food ingredients and asking mm -hmm. her what she thinks about that. And if there are any things that in her experience, she's noticed 
uh, might be something you should be looking at. But okay. give her a list of the things that you know you, you have a problem with. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and then talk about eating behaviors because she may be of the school that if you have to lose weight, it's good to keep your mouth busy. And you might say to her, but I can't keep my mouth busy. So what should I do in relation to that? You know, I just these are all just ideas that have come to me. I don't know if that's a complete list, but sharing your your vulnerability and your truth for yourself should help the nutritionist in, in helping you. You may have to go back again after, after the nutritionist has given you something and you may look at it and ponder it and think about it. You know what? This aspect of it is something that I really have to avoid. I can't do what the nutritionist has told me I should be doing. And you may have to go back to the nutritionist and say, you know what? This part I can't do. What do you have to suggest in exchange? You know, I, I don't know, but, uh, but it's, it's your own sense of honesty. It's no one else's that ultimately will determine within the context of what she tells you, you can eat what you should be eating and how you should be eating. That makes sense? Joy, you'll have to press oh, star sorry, one. Thank you. I thought mm-hmm. I, was, I was unmuted. Thank mm-hmm. you. That was very helpful. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you to everyone who asked questions this morning. Of course, thank you, Lori, for this outstanding and detailed presentation this morning on the double whammy and developing a plan of eating. Thank you so very much for giving of yourself today. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity, Leah. Thank you. We always enjoy your visits. Page 164 is where we'll close from in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Chapter 11. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be ship of the spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.